Thank you, worship team, for leading us to worship of our King together. Uh, church, good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, let's continue in the book of Mark together. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you should see a blue one in the chair bottom in front of you. We would love for you to open that one up with us. God's Word is incredibly powerful and precious, and so we would love for you to be able to read that with us. Uh, and also, everything that I say up here, we would hope that you would look and make sure that I am matching up with the Word of God. Um, if you need a Bible, take that blue one home with you. Give that blue one away to somebody. We would love to be part of that. Give it away, give it away, give it away. We'd love that. We would love that. Mark chapter 10, big number 10, little number 32 in just a moment. Um, who do you think is the bravest person in the entire world? The whole history of the world. Who do you think is the bravest person? Maybe you think of uh, Medal of Honor winners or ancient war heroes like Hercules or Audie Murphy. And you know who Audie Murphy is? Most decorated World War II soldier in the United States Ar Army. I think it was, yeah, it was Army. I used to watch his movie. My dad showed me his movie all the time growing up. Audie Murphy. He was a hero. I still have a picture of him jumping on top of the tank and fighting, you know, that comes to mind. Maybe somebody like that. Maybe somebody in books or movies like James Bond. He seems like a pretty, you know, brave guy. Um, superhero movies. Maybe somebody like Iron Man. Uh, I think the guy in the running is a man named Hugh Glass. You know Hugh Glass? A couple movies made, at, made about him. Hugh Glass. Hugh Glass, in his early 40s, was attacked by a grizzly bear in Grand River in 1823. The attack was so severe that his companions left him for dead, wrapped him in a, in a bear skin and left him for dead. When Glass regained consciousness, he wrapped himself back up in that bear skin and he began crawling along the banks of the Cheyenne River 200 miles to the nearest settlement. On, on, along the way, he ate rattlesnake. Can you imagine eating rattlesnake? Not just eating rattlesnake. you got to kill it first, right? I mean, that's... I think I would look for something else. He ate berries, roots, and he even stole a bison calf from two wolves after getting attacked by a bear. He finally, he made it, and... His tombstone reads, adventurous. I would say so. That's a brave man. That anybody that we can come up with falls incredibly short when it comes to courage, when it comes to bravery. There's one man who walked this earth that was braver than anyone. That's our Savior. And you know, growing up in church, I, we don't talk about how brave Jesus was and is. That's what we, we have many things that we talk about, about our Savior, and as we should, there's a million things that we should admire about Jesus, but one of the things that we don't talk about much is His courage, His bravery. In our, our passage today, we see Jesus' courage on display, and it is absolutely shocking. It is absolutely shocking. Would you bow with me and let's, let's talk to our King. 
Father, Father, you know the heavy burden of my heart anytime I, we come across passages like this where my job is to not only expound and exposit the word of God, but it's to try to elevate Jesus and to try to make him, try to reveal how glorious he is. Father, I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. I'm not eloquent enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm, and so, Father, we rely on you just as we do every time we get to this moment on Sunday. Father, we rely on you. Please, Father, in our hearts, please work through this broken, sinful preacher to reveal how awesome Jesus is. Father, just prepare our hearts, please. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take a look at our shocking Savior. Let's read this together. This is Mark chapter 10, big number 10, little number 32, and we're going to go to little number 45 together. So it goes like this. I'll read aloud. You, you follow along in your Bible if you would, please. It goes like this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, saw their moment, saw their opportunity, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That sounds like my little four-year-old coming up to you, right? Will you do whatever I ask, Daddy? And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able! And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Shocking 
shocking passage. And the first thing that we see, the first thing that we are supposed to be shocked about, the, uh, Mark focuses in laser focus on how shocking Jesus is by how shockingly courageous Jesus is. Did you see, you see how it starts out? I mean, it might not seem that big. We might pass over it, but it says this. Let's read it again. Verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. They were amazed and afraid. I think we could say shocked. They were shocked. What were they shocked about? They see Jesus, the man that they have dedicated years of their life to. They're looking at Jesus, the one whom all the powerful people in the world seem to want to kill. And they're on the road. We've seen them on the road. And in my mind's eye, it goes like this. They're on the road. Jesus is leading as He does so often. And there's some chit-chat going on in the disciples. Remember, there are crowds following too, right? You've got the twelve, and then you've got other followers, other, other disciples, not the twelve, and then you maybe have a crowd, but they're chit-chat, and all these things are going on, and Jesus is ahead, and He's, he's steam, steaming right ahead. Perhaps He's got a laser focus, and he, you, know, you could see that. You say, well, we'll just give Him some time. And so they're following, and they're chatting about the weather, and chatting about home, and there's a fork in the road. And this way goes to some little village, and such and such, and then this way goes to Jerusalem. And Jesus, with a head of steam, takes this path. In my mind's eye, the chit-chat starts to die away. And the followers must be thinking something like, did He take a wrong turn? And the gravity of the situation falls on the disciples. Doesn't he know where that leads? And Mark wants us to know and wants us to see they're not amazed by Jerusalem. They're not afraid of Jerusalem and what might be there. These men are shocked by Jesus. They have seen courage they could never imagine. So, to really understand what Mark's going through, we've got to understand what courage is. Courage takes three things. As far as I can tell, courage takes three things. It takes genuine danger, some dangerous thing. It takes an understanding of that danger. I, I know what it is. I know what it could do to me. And then it takes a strength of will to confront that danger. Danger, understanding, and strength of will. I think that makes courage. And Jesus displays all of these. There's a real danger in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a storm of hatred toward Jesus. Every powerful man in Jerusalem wants Him dead. Jerusalem is a city where stoning and beating and whipping and crucifixion is a regular occurrence and a regular sight. And we know in Mark, we know what men 
from this road, what men down this road think about Jesus. We know what they've been saying about him. Men from Jerusalem call Jesus a blasphemer. You're lying about God. You're lying about what God says. You are a false prophet. You're a blasphemer. And nowadays, that just might get you excommunicated from a church, but those days, that got you killed to be a blasphemer. Men from Jerusalem say that Jesus must be in league with Satan. He's casting out demons. They can't deny that because they've seen it with their own eyes. And people, uh, thousands of people know who Jesus is and have seen what Jesus has done with demons. And they can't say, well, it doesn't really happen because they know it has happened. And so their best course of action is to say, well, uh, he must be on Satan's team. In fact, at a certain point, these men from Jerusalem will call Jesus, they have called Jesus in the book of Mark, they call Jesus possessed by Beelzebub, the devil. Not just some little piddly demon down here on the ladder. No, Jesus must be possessed by the devil himself. What do you imagine ultra-religious people do with somebody who's possessed by Satan himself? Not only that, and the disciples are knowing that this is, this is coming, not only that, Jesus is not some wimpy dude that when these guys come who call him all these terrible things, Jesus doesn't just shrink back. No, this dude is courageous. He looks these men in the face and he calls them, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're snakes. You might look good on the outside, but I tell you, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look good on the outside, but on the inside you've got dead men's bones. What is he saying there? He's saying you are destined for hell. You're not right with God. Dead men on the inside. He calls them vain worshipers. False teachers. Not only that, in Jerusalem is the seat of Roman power. And the Jews have always been a rebellious people for the Romans. They have to squash some new uprising, it seems like, every time they turn around. And so how do you think the Romans like it when Jesus feeds 5,000 men from His hands and those 5,000 men, as we saw in Mark, those 5,000 men are so into Jesus, they want to take Him and make Him king by force. That's what it says. We want to put Jesus on the throne and we're, going to, we're your army, Jesus. There's 5,000. We can get everybody else on board. You make more bread. You make more shields. You make, you make swords. We're in. How do you think the Romans feel about that? And this is, this is the most clear. The men from Jerusalem down that road, we know what they thought about Jesus. In the third chapter of Mark, right out of the gate, right at the beginning of the book, Jesus heals a man who's deformed. He heals him on the Sabbath. <gasps> Can you imagine the gall of that? And the Pharisees come up and they say, what do you do in healing somebody on the Sabbath like this? And Mark tells us, that moment, they conspired to destroy him. So the danger is very real. Not only is there danger, but for courage, there has to be an understanding, a knowledge of that danger. If, you don't, if we don't understand what 
is down the road of Jerusalem. It's not real courage. You could just go there and you don't know what's sitting there for you. With no realization or recognition or understanding of the danger, it's not real courage. It's like my one-year-old. My one-year-old is just starting to walk. And he's just started to discover stairs. It's a bad combination. And so he'll see those stairs and think, that looks fun. And he'll wobble toward the stairs. But that's not courage. Because my little boy doesn't know, understand what stairs are, what they mean for a little wobbly one-year-old. It's not courage. It's something else. Pressing, pursuing danger with no understanding of the danger is foolishness or confusion or immaturity. It's not, it's not it. So, so does Jesus know what's down that road? But you see, even for us, for us, for us, even courageous acts for us are, 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 are kind of uh, we're, we're not 100% sure about the danger. It could be there or maybe it could be gone. Maybe Jesus could go down that road and, and the dangerous people might all be gone. Or might, maybe they've had a change of heart. See, our, our understanding of the dangers in our life are always incomplete. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm on death row. Maybe the governor will call and, and, and will stay the execution. You never know. You never know. Maybe the battle will be called off. Maybe the enemy won't be able to shoot straight. All those things are coming to play with our courage. Maybe there are these ways out. But Jesus is God in flesh. He doesn't have the luxury of incomplete knowledge and understanding. He knows exactly what's waiting for Him in Jerusalem. He knows the exact details. And this makes his courage all the more shocking. The murmuring is happening. He takes a right to go up to Jerusalem, and the murmuring stops. And Jesus doesn't falter. He's heading that direction, but he notices the murmuring has stopped. And sometimes you can feel those moments, right? The weight of those moments. And so Mark tells us, he said, Okay, all right, come here. Come here, 12. And listen to, I mean, listen, it's, it's, he's trying to reassure him that he knows what he's doing. Listen to what he says. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, that's his favorite name for himself, Son of Man, will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. There's no question there's no, this might happen. There's no, I'm going to go to the Pharisees and we're going to sit down over a meal and we're going to really try to hash this out and get on the same terms. No, Jesus is saying that this will happen. That's courage that we can never understand. He's delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Jesus knows the thoughts that are running through the mind of the chief priests and the scribes. He knows what's going through their head. He knows the other men that they have condemned to death. He knows every detail about them. This is the same group that brings Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And they say, we need a stoner. 
These are the men who want to kill Jesus after he heals a disfigured man. These men are bloodthirsty, religious freaks. Jesus, no, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. We see a picture of courageous Jesus and totally, totally wimpy, scared Pharisees and scribes. They won't do it themselves. They hire the Romans to do it. They'll even hand me over to the Gentiles. His own people are too scared to condemn Him and they step away from getting their hands dirty. He says they will mock Me and spit on Me. Jesus will be paraded through one of the largest cities in the ancient world. And at that time, people show up to these things. That's your entertainment. And people who will come watch the show feel a religious right to do this. Deuteronomy tells us, cursed of God is anyone who's hung on a tree, on a cross. And so, you have that kind of religious fervor in the background that, yeah, we need to, we need to spit on this guy, we need to mock this guy. Call Jesus a heretic, a liar, cursed of God. Mock Him and spit on Him and He will be hung naked on the cross for hours. And there's no moment in our lives in which we will receive 1% of the mocking and humiliation that Jesus received. Think back in your mind of your most humiliating moment. How many people were involved? Probably not many. Probably not a whole city. How long did it last? It's probably, if you're like me, it was probably some stupid thing you said in class and everybody laughed. Maybe something like that. How long did it last? A second? Not hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. Was it life or death? In the end, was it really that big of a deal? Think about those humiliations that we carry around in our back pocket our entire lives. Sometimes they happen when we're six or seven and we carry those things around. Think about the mental scarring that happens even on things like that that we admit aren't that big of a deal. Think about what hanging on the cross, being spit on and mocked, being abandoned by your friends. Think about the mental scarring that would do to a normal human being. They will flog him. That is... Jesus knows this is happening. That's, that's you whip somebody who will die. They're, ex- they're being executed, and so you're not too worried about killing him. So you're not going to be gentle. You flog somebody, and you rip the skin off their back and around their sides, exposing often bone and organ. And then Jesus will die on the cross. Jesus' destroyed back will hang on a rough, rugged cross for hours. Nails will be driven into the, to the nerves of His wrists and His feet, causing fiery pain anytime He moves. He will be unable to breathe in that position, and so He will have to be forced to pull up on the nails to get any breath. And you can only do this for so long before you suffocate. And the worst part, worst part that's bad but the worst part is something that we we puzzle over and we wonder about and we ask about 
the worst part is that hanging on the cross, the Son of God who existed in a perfectly loving relationship with His Father, the Son of God, Jesus, will willingly endure all the Father's wrath. That's what makes the cross the cross. Other people have been crucified. That's what makes the cross terrible. Joel Beek says it this way, here Jesus descends into the essence of hell. Not literal hell, the essence of hell. The most extreme suffering ever experienced. It is a time so compacted, so infinite, so horrendous, as to be incomprehensible. As he is dying utterly alone, utterly alone, the wrath of God the Father being poured out on our sin that has been laid upon Jesus. He is dying, dying utterly alone, and as he's dying, he cites Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christian, that, that bought our freedom. That bought our freedom. By Jesus' sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. But God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We benefit from the worst moment in human history. Romans 5, but God shows His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been made right, we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Danger understanding of danger. He knows every moment. He knows every molecule in the soldiers that will nail Him to the cross. He knows every molecule. He planted the tree that will become His cross. Danger. Understanding of danger. But those two together don't make courage. Danger and understanding of danger. There's a real danger. I understand it. And I could go, I'm not going. You might have to tie me up to do it. That's not courage. I might, it might happen to me, but if I, you tie me up, it's not courage. And there are accusations that are flung at Christianity like Jesus was, this was an accidental death or, or this was some kind of divine child abuse like Jesus did not have a say in it. 
It could not be further from the truth. And I can't imagine a, a claim that makes Jesus more angry than the thought that He did not do this of His own will. He's courageous. Danger, understanding, and supernatural strength of will. I'm doing it. That's our Savior. I'm doing it. We see Jesus' supernatural strength of will. Jesus walking ahead of them in such a way, with such a, a, a head of steam, that these guys see Him heading for His death, and they are shocked. They're amazed and a little bit afraid that a man has such will to take his destiny in his own hands. Who is this man? Who could this man be? Determination, focus, steely resolve, no retreat. You see, Jesus' greatest desire Jesus' greatest desire was to drink the danger to the dregs for the glory of the Father and for the good of His people. That's His greatest desire. That's what His entire life on earth was about. In His strength of will, get this, in His strength of will, He was so courageous. In His strength of will, we see in Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 says, it was for His joy that He bore the cross. Joy? Who is this man? In His strength of will, He wasn't tied up he wasn't coerced. He, didn't, he wasn't oblivious to what was happening. We even hear... We even, so so here, here's an account before Jesus... It was during Jesus' arrest, you remember this, Peter whips his sword out and slices the guy's ear off. You remember this? Jesus says, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Are you not aware? Get a load of this. Are you not aware that I could call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? What's He saying? He's saying, I'm in the driver's seat here. I am doing the will of the Father. Don't you understand, Peter? At a moment, I could ask the Father and He could kill everybody on earth with angels. That's how precious I am to Him. One word, and all my enemies go to oblivion. Put your sword away. I'm doing this. Strength of will we could only hope to imagine. His strength of will, Jesus tells us this. Like, like the, he's going. This is what he wants to do. He willingly takes the cross. It's for his joy. He says this in John 10, I am the good shepherd, and a good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When taken from him. Those men, those guards on his right and his left parading him through the street, they didn't need to be there. He's not running away. Every step was from his incredible strength of will. Not an accident. 
not forced. Strength of will. And to add to this, to even lift Him up further, Jesus is shockingly all alone. He's got people around Him. He's shockingly all alone. James and John come and they want, they want to be a big shot in His kingdom. They say, well, He's going to go. He's going to die. He's going to rise. This is the time. If I'm going to get in, this is the time. And then the, the other disciples hear Him say that and they get livid. And Jesus calls out, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you ask. Can you drink this cup? Can you be baptized in my baptism? The cup. Old Testament reference to the wrath of God. Wrath of God is being stored up in the cup. Jesus is going to drink the cup for His people. Can you drink the cup, James and John? Yeah. No. Baptism. Baptism symbolizes, in the Greek time, you talk about baptism like I'm just drowning in my sorrows. We'd say that. I'm drowning. Can you be baptized in the baptism of the cross? Yeah. No. Not only could they not do it, they didn't understand. They don't understand. They have utterly misunderstood the nature of Jesus and His kingdom. And it's not just two guys. And it's not just two guys who misunderstood. The rest of them go, hey, I want a seat. What are you doing? Get me a seat too. They don't understand. No one on the planet understands Jesus' mission. He's utterly alone. John the Baptist, his cousin, whom Jesus says is the greatest man from woman to ever live. John gets thrown in prison. He baptizes Jesus. John gets thrown in prison and goes, I'm not supposed to be here. Sends a letter to Jesus and says, are you the one? Even John the Baptist doesn't fully understand. Mary, his mother, sees angels. When Jesus starts teaching and does his ministry, Mary comes with his brothers and says, Jesus, you need to go home with us. We put you in the in a rubber room so you don't hurt yourself because you're crazy. Even Mary doesn't understand. Not only that, no one on the planet can ever lift a single finger to help Jesus save sinners. That's the point. That's why He picked these men. That's why God orchestrated the cross and the events of the cross the way He did. See, knew Peter was going to try to be a big guy and go, Jesus, I'm going to die with you, Jesus. You remember saying that? These other guys might abandon you, not me, Jesus. I'm going to the cross with you. And Jesus says, really tough guy. I'm going to tell you the truth. You're going to abandon me. Just like everybody else. Really, James and John, you think you can raise a finger to help me in my mission? You don't understand what you are talking about. No one on the planet can help Jesus save sinners. He's the only one. He's the only one. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you, Christian, non-believer? Do not try to lift a righteous finger to earn your own salvation. Are you with me? 
Christian, do not fall into the trap of thinking, yeah, maybe Jesus saved me by grace through faith, but now I've got to earn something from God, earn favor, anything. You don't help Jesus. He's given you everything. You can't help Him. It's done. When He dies on the cross, what does He say right before He dies? It's finished. What does that mean? Part of what it means is, you, He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your help. He is utterly alone. And that just adds to His courage. It just adds to His courage. And finally, Jesus is shockingly the sacrificed slave. When we think of other brave people, we don't think of them being brave so that they can become slaves. That doesn't make sense in our mind. When we think of brave, we think of brave heart. Remember that movie? Brave heart. He fought for freedom. He fought to, to give himself and his people a better place. He, he, wanted to, he wanted good things for his people. He wanted to be in charge. He was a nice, handsome, strong man. But God became weak. And he became a slave. The courageous, lonely king does not receive glory on a battlefield. He doesn't receive glory by slaying a giant. He doesn't receive glory by being cheered by a crowd. He doesn't receive joy or glory from winning an election or fighting for freedom, but he receives glory by acting like a slave. And what that does is it takes everything we thought we knew about the world and it brings it on its head. If our king is a slave, and not just a slave, but if our king courageously went to Jerusalem to be a slave, if that is the case, what does that mean for you and me, Christian? May faithful followers not live comfy lives in pristine palaces while our master is a slave. Do you see yourself as a slave to those around you? Jesus says, James and John, you got it wrong. Disciples, you got it all wrong. The people of the world think that Power means and greatness means lording over people, having authority over people. But he says, I tell you the truth, those among you who will be great will be a slave. Even the Son of Man came to serve and not be served. Christian, do you see those around you as your master? Christian, do you put your preferences in chains for your church family? Do you see yourself as a slave for your neighbor's good? We have a shocking Savior. Let me ask this. Why do we not share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors. Why do Christians, why do we find it so difficult? I would put this out there. I think that we find it so difficult to share the gospel because we 
forget how shocking our Savior really is. We share shocking things. We share shocking politics. It's the first thing we want to talk about. Did you hear what Biden did? Did you hear what Trump did? We share shocking things. We share shocking things. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl. We share shocking things. We love sharing shocking things. The reason that we fall short in sharing the good news of Jesus with those around us who are lost and going to hell, the reason we have lost sight of that is because we forget how shocking Jesus is. May we always remember. May we wake up in the morning and remember how shocking our salvation is, how huge His grace and mercy has been in our life. May we always remember the worship team to come up and join me. Let me ask you this. Are you, Christian, living a pristine, comfortable life while your Savior is a slave? Christian, let me ask you this. What is Jesus calling you to lay down for others right now? Christian, let me ask you this. Is there someone in your life who is a non-believer on their way to hell that you care for but have not shared the good news of Jesus with? Have you forgot how shocking He is? Would you stand with us as we sing together?